This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies in theaters and then connects them to films from days gone by. Some uh, some forgotten classics that you might want to look into and some, some nuggets that uh, Carson and I both love very dearly. My name is Stephen Cook and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I've got a blog called Flaw on the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And this week, uh, we were both seeing double because we went to see Gemini Man, a new action adventure with a sci-fi twist directed by Ang Lee. And we're going to take a look at that film and some more classics by Ang Lee right after this. Stephen, it's great to sit again with you in the studio to discuss uh, a filmmaker, a Taiwanese filmmaker who has... I mean, in his career, we, we, we looked at, in some focus towards all of his 14 features. Yes. Uh, I hope that we get a chance to talk about most of them, if not all of them, through the next hour. Um, but to, our, <laughs> to credit Ryan McNutt, a little Ang time. Yes. <laughs> I think we found our title. Uh, so, yeah, Ang Lee, originally from uh, Taiwan, moved to the United States, and... Uh, found his his way into making films uh, having gone to film school in in, in New York um he his screenwriter his first screenplay won an award in and a bunch of money in a contest in Taipei and he took that money to um an American production company run by James Seamus and Ted Hope who were his early collaborators Seamus wound up being a screenwriter and a regular collaborator through 10 of his 14 films um and uh these guys had a very indie uh, production company in New York City and helped put together his first few films. Um, and they are known, I think, retrospectively as the Father's no- Father Knows Best trilogy yes. uh, from 92, Pushing Hands, 93, The Wedding Banquet, and 94, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. And that was the the three films that um, that were largely made, uh, you know, in in Mandarin, I believe, and uh, and shot two of them shot in New York and one in Taipei, uh, and it really made his reputation as a filmmaker. Ang Lee, of course, went on to great success in Hollywood. Making uh, he's he's one of those those filmmakers who never. He, he's never bothered or stopped. In fact, I think genre, switching genre is one of the things he loves to do. He Every time out, he wants to do something different, try a genre he hasn't tried before, which is kind of goes against a lot of those sort of auteur theories that, that you know, filmmakers get a theme and they just kind of work through the same material and the same themes from time to time to time again. And I think Lee... I mean, he, he certainly has a humanist touch. Like, he has, he's interested in tradition versus contemporary issues. He's interested in the relationship between generations. And he's interested in people. Like, his, his films feature, always feature kind of uh, engaging characters. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he's done superhero films. He's done westerns. He's done uh, wushu martial arts, martial yes. arts films. He's done... Uh, uh, affecting personal dramas like the Ice Storm and Brokeback Mountain. I mean, he's it's it's astonishing his the breadth of his filmography. Yeah, and then uh, even while 
jumping from style to style or genre to genre, he still manages to touch on some of his favorite themes, like you say, the parent-child relationship or mentor-student relationships and and uh, and these kind of things. Even in, in, in something like uh, Gemini Man, which is, for the most part, purely driven by special effects and uh, the ability to do new things, uh, which is obviously something that's fascinated him. Since uh, well, even since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which we don't think of as special effects driven, but of course the way they, they you know digitally painted out wires and things like that was was uh, was a lot of uh, new technology at the time. So and then you get to something like Life of Pi, where it really takes computer graphics to a new, phantasmic uh, phantasmagorical realm. Uh, you know, but but at the same time, like you say, having that kind of core humanistic. Uh, character-driven uh, storyline uh, fascination as well. So he, he's able to kind of balance those things out more or less, uh, you know, successfully, depending on the film, because we're going to talk about Gemini, a film, a Gemini Man, a film that has not been terribly well-received. And, and you know, at first glance, seems to be a little, a little out of his realm in yeah. some regards, even though it does, you know, we eventually the film gets around to these kind of father-son uh, relationships and so on. Yeah, well, it wasn't terribly well-received by us either. No, no, well, <laughs> well, let's, let's be honest up front. Yeah, yeah, and, and we, we are, we're going to go on on uh, level here and, and admit to our fan, fandom of Ang Lee. I think we wouldn't do a whole uh, episode on him if we didn't have a lot of affection for his work. There's a lot of great films in his catalog. But this... I just feel like in the last few years, he has been more interested in the technological possibilities of digital cinema. And uh, his his last couple of films have been shot with a super high frame rate, which uh, I think in terms of what we are able to see here, we, we don't get the 120 frames per second kind of, uh, of visuals. I think you can see it in 3D, you can see it in IMAX, but Gemini Man here just looks like a like a very digital film, you know? It has that kind of crispness to it, which, uh, you know, visually is, is fine, though it does feel to me a little bit like it's just an austerity of style, you know? There's not much of it that looks particularly impressive other than the, that it's a, it's a, it's a well-lit uh, science fiction, you know, uh, action picture. Yeah, I've only seen one film in that format. They showed the very first uh, installment of the Hobbit trilogy here, and uh, I got to say, I was not left uh, terribly impressed. I found it, uh, I found it hard to watch. I found it kind of a strain on the eyes in some sense. Maybe, maybe that's just uh, a, sim- a symptom of my age, perhaps. But it just, you know, because there's so much detail that's revealed for better and often for worse. I mean, especially when it comes to things like makeup. I mean, you, you could just see the latex and the glue on the on the, the hobbits and so on. It really does lay bare a lot of the tricks of the trade in a way that uh, film and, um, you know, sort of treated modern uh, 1080p or whatever 4K digital uh, doesn't necessarily do. So, uh, and I'm trying to imagine how some of the effects looked in that super high frame rate because they've seemed fairly obvious in you know regular digital projections. So I, I can't imagine they looked any better um, when you increase the resolution uh, to that degree. Yeah, yeah. And in this film, you know, there's a lot of CGI. The, the, I, I, for anyone who doesn't know the story, basically it's about a wildly talented government killer named Henry Brogan, played by 51-year-old Will Smith, who can hit a target through the window of a speeding bullet train. He decides after a long, bloody career to call it a day, retire. But his retirement lasts for about 24 hours when an old friend of his tells him that his last job might have been a setup. 
and he easily spots a lady on the in his fishing dock in Georgia whose name is Danny, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, as someone paid by his employer to keep an eye on him. Before long, they're both on the run from an agent with a familiar set of skills, and it's Brogan's younger, cloned self, cultivated in a lab by another one of Brogan's old buddies, uh, Varys, played by Clive Owen. So, you know, you've got very much this opportunity for this, like, how do you relate to a younger version of yourself? Okay, so... um, Ang Lee is interested in that sort of like mentor, as you mentioned, that mentor father son kind of relationship. But is a clone your son? Is a clone just a younger version of yourself? The 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 point here that uh, that Brogan makes the effort is to try to connect with this younger version of himself, uh, assuming that he has the same emotions and the same doubts and the same uncertainties, even though the Clive Owen, Owen character says this guy doesn't. That he was like programmed to be a better killer and a more effective killer than the older version of the assassin. And, uh, but, you know, as I'm watching it, I'm going, well, there's so many other issues that get brought yes, up with cloning no that yeah. are completely ignored. I mean, I think if I wound up seeing a 25-year-old version of myself, because uh, I'm a lot closer to uh, Will Smith's actual age than his his doppelganger, his younger doppelganger, I might be creeped out. I might want to end the life of that younger version. I mean, life, yeah, well, even. Is he a human being? You know, is, does he, uh, is he afforded the same rights and freedoms as, as anybody else like there's so many issues that get brought up with cloning um existential and ethical that this film completely doesn't care about yeah it's so funny like well i mean clay Varus thinks that you know if i give the clone of uh, of a uh, brogan if i give him a better like if i'm more of a father figure and he has a you know a better upbringing and all this stuff that'll make him a better killer and it's like well it's probably the things that were missing in the real brogan's life that made him a better kill. You know, the fact that he didn't necessarily, you know, came from a broken home and all that stuff that might've made him a better killer than, you know, there might be a reason why he's the good assassin that he is. And it doesn't have to do with, you know, the fact you know, that he didn't have a father yeah, figure, or he had a maybe, father who was, who's kind of cruel and maybe he lacked know, empathy, him. you know, maybe he lacked empathy. And that's part of what makes you a good killer. If you're not yeah. thinking about the lives of the people you're taking so, anyway. It, and you think, and, you know, Owen's character is supposed to be fairly smart, so you'd think he'd kind of figure that out, but I, apparently he doesn't. So. Yeah, yeah. Too so, so it's it, it, there's a lot of problems with the script here. Now, this script has been around for 20 years, and it's been through a number of development phases. Apparently, Mel Gibson was going to be starring in it at one point, and Harrison Ford, but they finally decided that now the technology is up to scratch in order to recreate the younger version of Will Smith, someone who we know so well what he looked like at the younger age at the the fresh prince age and i don't think that helps the film because the there's a deep uncanny uncanny valley problem here wherein the younger version just looks like an like not all the time they're occasionally like oh yeah that does look like a person walking behind them you know behind the actors there that it, it does look right um, but there's plenty of times especially in the close-ups where i'm just like this is a cgi creation it looks like what it is yeah i i thought for a bit that maybe they just had someone wearing like a green screen face mask and they were kind of projecting, you know, digitally projecting young Will Smith's face onto it, you know, from, yeah, outtakes from, uh, from Fresh Prince and so on. But, but, and then I, you know, when I did some digging, it's like, no, he's fully CGI for the most part. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they cheat it in in some ways, uh, just for the sheer economy of being able to have a 
stunt double when you're doing a, you know, it doesn't have to look like Will Smith if you're shooting him from behind kind of stuff. So I'm guessing it's not always completely CGI. That would just seem like a, a real waste of resources. But, yeah. um, you know, you don't want to spend the whole film playing the is it or isn't it game. Like it, it's maybe the less you know, the better. But But there are moments, especially when, they, you know, when they're out of the darkness and they're not hiding in the shadows and so on, you know, towards the end where it's just like patently obvious that, yes, this is just a computer person. Yeah, and it, it takes me, it, there. it took me out of the film. And I'm someone who is uh, definitely like, I'm in the audience for this kind of movie. I like high-tech espionage thrillers, and it's very much in the mold of a 90s. There were a bunch of these made in the 1990s. Will Smith was in one of them, Enemy of the State. Yes, terrific you know? film. And, uh, and so... I was I was down with this, but I the more I watched it, the more I realized that the, that high frame rate or whatever it is that digital treatment, um, it, it works against the uh, the the technology that recreates a human being. So yeah, I think there are some real problems that the film doesn't solve. And uh, although I I liked some of it, I was entertained by a lot of it. By the end, it just started to fall apart in ways that it just couldn't. It couldn't sustain the the last act is is a real mess. Yeah, well, you know, with as much as we talked about the technology, the script has issues as well. Like, and maybe, and maybe if those hadn't been present, maybe we could have written off some of the technological uh, issues with the film. But because some of the dialogue is so clunky, and you know, just uh, you know, I mean, Clay Varis is basically Mister Exposition. He's just there to explain like why things are ha- happening due to all the stuff he's been doing in the lab and so on. And that's that's some pretty you know B grade level uh, storytelling right there. But if, you know, they've got to communicate all this info about the cloning and and why what they're doing is bad and 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 it's you know it's just like and why does buddy tell will smith what he like he basically gives him the information that puts the the price on his head essentially it's like maybe he would have been better off not knowing and everything would have been fine and uh you know or or why brogan didn't just you know take the shot early in the film when he had the chance obviously because there would be no movie but at the same time he's enough of a pro that it seems odd that he wouldn't instinctively just take out his target before having that WTF moment, and, and we all know what so that on. is. Like, there's and, no yeah, mystery. we already know what, what what's going on. Yeah, and they, they kind of trailer. You know what's happening. They kind of drag that one out, but maybe that, that's not something that necessarily the filmmaker has any control over. But uh, you know, the the issues with the film just kind of start to pile up and exponentially over yeah. the course of the film. But I mean, there there was stuff to like about it. Certainly, the action scenes. I mean, Ang Lee, you know, going back to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, has certainly got a handle on 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 how to film a coherent uh, action scene, fight scene, whatever, the chase with the motorcycle, I was cringing because it just reminded me of, of my own personal experience <laughs> with an, a motorcycle crash, one that I did not get up and just kind of slightly limp away from, like Will Smith does here, and he hits the concrete a lot harder than I did, I think. Um, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's, that's, you know, that's something you just have to write off. That's just movie magic. We're used to that. But, um, you know, the, that whole scene is great. Um, I like some of the, you know, Mary Elizabeth Winstead I thought was great in her role. She's, she's always good. I mean, I was like yeah, her when she's, she's on screen. She's charming, but, you know, she sells the part that she actually is an agent with some pretty impressive, uh, you know, fight skills and a- is able to take care of herself. Um, except maybe at the end where all of a sudden she's just firing and not hitting anything and all of a sudden she's not quite as useful as she was early in the film, which is always a, a, a problem. Benedict Wong is, is, is fun kind of character support as, as uh, Brogan's old uh, army pal pilot who's like the best pilot there is kind of thing. And, and he's, he brings some levity to it and his character is, is 
you know fairly well written and I like their stuff together but but uh but then when once uh, once we just get to the final act and it's time for the big showdown and we have that like the the big shootout with all the troops in a, like a small town that's apparently devoid of any people whatsoever, except for the people who are fighting, uh, that kind of stuff. It's you, yeah, you're you're just you're you just drift away from this movie yeah. completely. Yeah, and I like I like Clive Owen generally. Yeah, me too. But I didn't find him terribly compelling here. He's just I, I think his the main problem with his character, what we addressed earlier, is this. Uh, this what has he done and how did he make sense of it um you know there he, he's given an opportunity to sort of monologue a little bit about this but overall it doesn't quite work and he's very he's he's, he's pretty two-dimensional uh, unfortunately yeah kind of a villain for the sake of being a villain and and then we've got uh smith's own um boss at that this security agency that's i guess sort of the nsa but is given some fictional fictional name and and uh and and why she's gone rogue in a sense and working with, uh, with the Clive Owens character isn't terribly well laid out. She just needs to be, you know, sort of corrupt <laughs> for, for the purposes of the plot, but we don't. And, you know, and once, once, uh, once the, she finds out that they've clued into what she's doing, she kind of vanishes from the playing field as well. So that's, uh, it, it's too bad. And, and, uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of potential. I think there was, uh, you know, maybe maybe the original script from 20 years ago <laughs> might have been better. I don't know. Um, I guess they felt maybe they had to update it for technology. I mean, you said that the original screenwriter he didn't he went to the premiere and barely saw anything that he'd written in this movie. So. That's that's what the story I think in the Hollywood Reporter said. Yeah, yeah. It's a uh, it, it's it's one of those projects I think maybe was was doomed to start, and it's it's too bad because you know let's go back and look at a lot of Ang Lee's great films because he has so many of them in in his 14 features and. Uh, we can start right at the beginning. Welcome back to Lends Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook. And I'm Karsten Knox. And we're taking a look at the films of Ang Lee in the wake of his latest big budget, big screen, playing in a theater near you, extravaganza, Gemini Man, which we just uh, took a giant dump all over in our first segment. Well, you know, we had some nice things to the, say. There's some good things about it. It's it's fairly engaging as an action film, but, but uh, with a second-rate script that I'm kind of surprised that you know considering the level of of the writing in, in so many of his movies the fact that he went to camera with uh, what he did seems like a seems like a major surprise and and uh, we're going to look at some of the films he did uh, right now with uh, his long-term sort of writing production partner James Seamus um I hope I'm pronouncing that right on Seamus uh, yep yeah I think it's um, Seamus and uh you know who they they sort of hooked up from the get-go with his uh first feature pushing hands and uh and uh, in a film that's sort of become you, you called it the father knows best trilogy I that's, guess because, I, I don't know who named that but that's when I when I look online those th- first three films that's what they're sort of uh they're called yes and uh they all star Si Hung Lung who is a, a a really talented actor sadly passed away in 2002 but uh he he plays that sort of like you know elderly but thoughtful wise uh uh, Chinese gentleman who uh, who is struggling with stuff on the in- inside. He's frequently in these films, like hiding some some sort of secret that uh, eventually comes out by the end. And in Pushing Hands, he is a uh, he is moved from China, or I should say from from I think mainland China. I'm not from, sure. Uh, or, or from I believe Taiwan. Taiwan uh, to be with his adult son Alex and Alex's American wife. 
and his grandson in New York or in the suburb in New York. And Mr. Chu speaks very little English. And uh, Deb, the, uh, the American wife, speaks no Chinese. So there's not much communication there. Uh, Mr. Chu is a Tai Chi master. Uh, and what I really loved is how the film, otherwise very much grounded in realism, includes some terrific scenes where Mr. Chu is basically a superhero. He turns into yes. it reveals Lee's passion for wuzhu and uh, and and that which he would completely go for in Crouching Tiger, which uh, you know was his incredible success, maybe still his largest success as a as at the box office. But I love the scene in the third act. Not to give too much away, Mr. Chu has taken a job washing dishes in a Chinese restaurant. He's a conflict with the owner who tries to move him, inspires all his co-workers to try to move him, and they can't, and then they all quit en masse, <laughs> and then the cops show up, and they can't move him, and it's just, it's amazing. I, I love that sort of little little divergence into this sort of magic realism, because the rest of the film is is totally like a, a, a realist you know, serious, uh, well, serious. It's a comedy drama, I would say, about this this sort of a generational and uh, and uh, cultural schism between these characters. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun and, and lovely film. I, I like the relationship between um, Mr. Shu and and the older woman who he meets, who's teaching the cooking class at right. the, at the at the Chinese Community Center, where he's teaching. Uh, um, uh, martial arts and, and specifically uh, Tai Chi and, uh, and 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 their relationship and and of course she's got her own doubts and fears. I mean they're very well rounded characters and it's it's balanced out by the fact that the young couple, uh, uh, Mr. Chu's uh, son and his um, white American daughter, are not so well rounded and and the scenes with them are, are not the greatest and that but it it is a first feature, um, you know obviously a low budget they're working with the actors that they're able to obtain the fact that uh, they were able to get uh, Si Hung Lung who's a, an actor from from Taiwan who who's got this career going back to the I think back into the sixties if I'm not mistaken and um, uh, you know that that he you know he becomes like the the center point of the film and, and it's much better for it when when anytime he's on screen yeah uh, and. You can, but you can kind of see where they're going to be going because of, you know the next film, The Wedding Banquet, uh, also er, you know has some early feature limitations. But you see Lee growing as a filmmaker; uh, he has a better uh, grasp of, of working with actors because uh, I think there are scenes in Pushing Hands that probably wouldn't pass muster. Um, you know that they would require another take or two to, to really just get the actorness out of it, I yeah. guess. No, I, I agree. There is a theatricality to that first film, where the second film, which was a quite a big success, given it's, uh, apparently it was, the year it came out, it was the most profitable film, um, even more than uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> Jurassic Park was like number two most profitable film, ah. based on uh, the ratio of production costs versus box office. And The Wedding Banquet um, is about a, a happily ensconced gay couple in New York City, and uh, the uh, Wei Tung and Simon, and Wei Tung is a landlord, and one of his tenants is a young woman, Wei Wei, who's broke and looking for a green card. Simon comes up with the plan. Wei Wei and Wei Tung should get married, so Wei Wei gets her citizenship, and Wei Tung satisfies his parents and their need for a marriage and possible grandchildren. What they don't count on is the parents from China arrive and they have to go through this whole charade and try yes. and try and like uh, you know and make the parents happy. And it reveals, of course, it just gets more and more complicated and in a comedic way. But there are also some genuine like you know dramatic moments. Um, it's uh, you know I, I I really love a lot of this film. Um, you know it crystallizes 
there and there are moments where like the scene where Wei Tung walks into the room and he's not sure if his father is sleeping or dead. That I love that <laughs> yes. moment. It crystallizes that sort of fear of mortality, but also the realization that he might not have to go through the sham marriage, like the stress on this character. There's also a great moment at the wedding banquet itself where the guests all demand that the bride and groom kiss. And after they do, Simon, the best man, wipes the lipsticks off of Wei Tung's <laughs> lips. I just thought that was a great moment. And even Lang Ang Lee, who actually, I guess, trained as an actor at one point, he uh, he has a cameo as a guest who says, you're witnessing the results of 5,000 years of sexual yes. repression. <laughs> um, and then there's the bridal suite invasion. Anyway, I don't want to say too much more about the plot. But yeah, the, the whole wedding sequence is so wonderfully planned out and plotted and, and uh or, you know, right up to the, the end of the so-called, you know, honeymoon night or whatever. Uh, it, it's so wonderfully put together. Uh, it, it, you know, he definitely wants to uh, improve on himself with every film in, in some way or another. And, uh, you know, it, it's, I think of this, this is the film where I first became aware of Ang Lee. I didn't find out about Pushing Hands. I don't, I don't imagine that it got much uh, distribution outside of the festival circuit and, and so on. But, um, but, but the wedding banquet did, you know, make the rep house circuit. I'm, I believe it played at Wormwoods when it was still fairly fresh at the time. And, and it was also part of a, I mean, there was, there was a wave of, um, you know, of, of directors of, of Chinese, either, you know, based in China or of Chinese descent. Wayne, Wayne Wang is another director who was coming to prominence at that time. He'd go on to make uh, Joy Luck Club after some very, uh, some, some very well-received in- indie features. Um, you know, and then there was, you know, Zhang Yimou from the mainland, uh, was was making films at the same time, like Judo and Raise the Red Lantern were coming out and Farewell My Concubine, these these films that, you know, beyond the Jackie Chan sort of John Woo kind of punch ups and shoot 'em ups uh, that Yeah, John Woo know, went to Hollywood, so Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, that was kind of what uh, a lot of uh you know, cinema from from Hong Kong and mainland China was was kind of known for and then, you know, Jet Li and so on and then along come these guys, this new generation of, of filmmakers either from there or with that kind of heritage to kind of show show a way of telling these stories that have that are very based in tradition in some ways uh, but are also very very new in the yeah. way they they tell their stories um but I, I like the the wedding banquet I mean there's so much about uh, Chinese family traditions but at the same time I think uh, I think he's trying to make his own version of like the Philadelphia story <laughs> like sure. it just has that kind of uh a little bit of class culture as well, uh, you know, with the, the sort of the, the urban yuppies and so on, and and uh, and and that screwball comedy element to it, and it's it's certainly a lot better balanced than um, than in Pushing Hands, and of course, it certainly points the way towards the film that really broke him into it. Like I say, the wedding banquet did make the rounds. It made me aware of his name, but it was uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. I guess we can call the breakthrough film of. of his early period because that was a, a huge uh, international hit. Yeah, yeah. And once again, he has um, Si Hong Lung as the sort of center of the film. He, in Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, he is the chef who uh, who is very well regarded, kind of a superhero chef uh, in Taiwan. He shot in Taipei in the, this time, who has three grown daughters, all of whom have their own personal problems. And uh, and they struggle in their relationships with other with men, and they struggle in their relationship with their father as well. And it's sort of a, it's a more... After the 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 first two films, I found it a little more dramatic and it's a little more of a of traditional drama. But it, it again deals with all the same 
same issues, those, those again, generations and tradition as, as things are changing. Um, uh, and, of course, it's also a foodie movie. If we wanted to do oh a, uh, an episode about <laughs> food movies, uh, this would definitely be one we would include. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, it's, it's – uh, it, and, and I think, yeah, at that point, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, was it nominated for Best Foreign Language Film? I think it was. It was, yes. And, uh, and yeah, Ang Lee was, was then, at that point, being – courted by uh, Hollywood uh, interests. Yeah, this film, uh, I saw it at the time, and, and uh, actually uh, my partner Jordana saw it at the time as well, and it was it was nice to go back and, and revisit this film. I, I had forgotten most of it, like <laughs> just by virtue of having seen so many movies since the early 90s, you know, 25 years ago, uh, and uh, I, I still really enjoyed it. I love the, I love the characterizations of the daughters, who are all three very different young women, and uh, their relationship with their father. And each one has a slightly different relationship with the father. Um, you know, they all love him dearly, of course, but each one, you know, is, it was affected differently by the death of their mother years before because they were at different ages and so on. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of layers here, which I really appreciated. And oh my gosh, do not watch this movie on an empty stomach. Like maybe watch it before you go out somewhere nice to eat or plan to, plan to have a nice meal somewhere immediately after watching this film because... Uh, you will be drooling through many, you know, even just the opening scenes where, um, you know, they, the camera just lingers on the father uh, making the, the, the weekly Sunday dinner. And yet he's making this feast of unbelievable proportions, you know, slicing a pork belly and and frying the fish and catching a chicken and booking, baking things in clay pots. And it's, you know, just that alone. I mean, the filmmaking in just that opening scene is so far above and beyond anything in the wedding banquet or pushing hands. It's... Uh, it's it's pretty remarkable, and it but just yeah, keeps going from there. His confidence as a filmmaker is at in full display on Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. That's for sure. Personally, I think I liked of the three early ones. The Wedding Banquet was my favorite. Um, it also reminded me a little bit of this summer's film, The Farewell, from filmmaker Lulu Wang, uh, which was a wonderful Chinese yes, film. Yes, I, I was. A lot of the same, I was thinking that, that film came to mind a couple times yeah. over the course of watching these early three films. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they they kind of. It, 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 I almost wonder if it's almost an homage maybe to these films because obviously she would have been influenced by these movies in a big way, uh, you know, from early on. But uh, yeah, I like the, like I, like we said, it's more confident. He's able to, you know, get uh, a top-notch cast. Um, Sylvia Chang, who is one of the best actors out of China, shows up in kind of a supporting role as this woman who's kind of a family friend. She was the best friend of one of the daughters. And... Um, but she still has this close tie to the family because I think she's, you know, she grew up without a dad and her mom is very pushy and, and uh, bossy and has returned, recently returned from the States where she couldn't stand anything. And, and uh, you know, the, the, her mom provides a, a fair bit of the comedy in the film just from having this kind of overbearing personality, much different from the, she plays, she plays uh, um, Si Yung Lung's wife in The Wedding Banquet. So it's interesting to see her play a completely different character in this film. Um, and, the, you know, and then, you you wonder what their connection to the family is to the point that it's featured so prominently in this film and then of course it does sort of play out in in the final uh, in the final scenes but um you know to, to have someone like Sylvia Chang in like a supporting role is and something that became such a big international hit is is kind of a measure of, of how revered Ang Lee was becoming at this point yeah and um, he uh, he then of course made what i think is well, my favorite of his films, which is Sense and Sensibility, which with with Emma Thompson and producer Lindsay Doran, who had the project cooking for years and had already gotten Emma Thompson working on the script for like four years. 
Uh, and when they saw the wedding banquet, they thought that Lee was perfect for Jane Austen. <laughs> the repression, the comedy of manners, the social satire, the double-edged edge of the material. The only problem being, at the time, Lee barely spoke much English. And this was a $16 million movie, much higher budget than he had ever shot anything at that scale. Apparently, he was terrified. But working with this top-level British cast and crew, he brought Seamus with him. And since Lee was so shy and his English wasn't so great, Seamus would go around telling everyone that Ang Lee was the Zen master. <laughs> that he, he's silent, but he's brilliant. And uh, I think the film is kind of a masterpiece it does it upends all your expectations of what a british period drama should be like you know it it makes it fun uh, it, it turns it really focuses in on the comedy as well as the drama of jane austen and uh it's the opposite of stuffy it's so so funny um for anyone who doesn't know the jane austen novel is about three sisters and their mother who are left bereft when the father dies and the laws give the estate to the brother whose nasty wife wants to throw the, her four relatives by marriage out of the house. But then there's another brother, the wife's br lovely brother, who gets friendly with the eldest sister. Now, they're played by Hugh Grant and Emma Thompson, who also won a Golden Globe and an Oscar for adapting the screenplay. The middle daughter is played by the very young and headstrong uh, Kate Winslet, who is wonderful in the role of Marianne. And then, of course, other roles, Greg Wise as John Willoughby, Alan Rickman as Colonel Brandon, who sort of haunts the picture. He has an affection for Marianne, which is, to be honest, a little creepy given the age <laughs> difference. But he's a complete gentleman. And then uh, there's other characters, Imelda Staunton, Harriet Walter, Gemma Jones, and Hugh Laurie also are in the film. Um, it is, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful movie. I, I actually revisited it when we were preparing for this chat, Stephen, and I know you did too. What did yes. you make of it seeing it again? It's so good, it, and it holds up completely because it doesn't rely. I mean, certainly there's no special effects or anything to kind of date it. It's it's set in you know the the eighteen hundred early eighteen hundreds, so it's it's not uh, you know the, there's no reason for the styles or anything to seem outdated. It, it feels like it hasn't aged today, apart from the fact that some cast members are no longer with us. I had forgotten how early it was in the career of Kate Winslet. I mean, she did this film. Basically, right after Heavenly Creatures, which was the breakout film that you know first brought it to everyone's attention, and uh, and and she's so wonderful here, and of course you know gave a hint at at, at what was to come uh, later in her career. But um, and uh, Emma Thompson, we already knew was fabulous when this movie came out. It's so well cast. I mean, everybody is perfect. Uh, I, I I don't even think I can think of a flaw in this film because yeah. it's just it, the comedy is is so dead on and played out so it was just the right kind of finesse and touch and you're just you just get a little giddy from what you get a little lightheaded watching this film because everybody's so good the machinations of the plot and everybody trying to make these arrangements and introduce people and trying to get people married off or whatever they're trying to do over the course of the film uh it, it's like it's almost like a chess game and and the people are pieces that are moving around but it's one played by you know a real chess master in, in a sense um that just uh, it's just this amazing confection that that and I, I'm trying to think because there was kind of a Jane Austen mania that I think this film kicked off. I yeah, believe that did. this was the film that and then we got Emma and and uh, you know a remake of Pride and Prejudice. And then it, it's uh, I, I think maybe it was already underway, but but this film was the one that you know, was such a success. And people saw this movie and 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 saw how lovely and 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 funny it was and. and uh, and warm and, and humane and, and, and all the things that go with it. And 
it's uh, it's you know you kind of I almost get nostalgic going where are the movies like this now? You yeah, know? it's true. Well, the period drama was a really big deal. That's for true. A while the there whole, were a lot of them. The whole Merchant Ivory thing, um, and of course Emma Thompson had also Howard's End, and so she was a, a, not only an actor but a writer in all of this, and uh, and yeah, so so it's uh, it's a wonderful film to revisit. I have it on Blu-ray through uh, Twilight Time, and it's uh, it's just it's a, a joy. A joy I, I suppose it. now we get the favorite, which is kind of but with sort of in the same realm, but with a lot more of a bite to it. Yeah, I more suppose. venom. So now we're moving into the middle part of Ang Lee's career here on Lends Me Your Ears. And uh, you had mentioned uh, wanting to talk about The Ice Storm, which was a a film that he made uh, with, oddly enough, two stars who, as far as we can tell, are filming within a block right now (laughs) of where we're sitting recording this podcast this morning. Uh, Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Klein are in Nova Scotia making a feature called The Good House at the moment based on a, a, a popular novel set in a, a New England town. Of course, uh, most of it's being filmed in Chester, but there's there's feature film crews all around Dalhousie campus and in Camp Hill Cemetery right now, and I, I can't imagine what else they might be filming at the moment. So I'm, I'm going to take a, a wild stab and say that somewhere in our nearby vicinity, the stars of the ice storm are either in front of a camera or in their trailer uh, going over their lines or something, whatever they people do in in their uh, in their downtime so but uh, but the ice storm was a, was a major triumph as well um, after sense and sensibility it found him uh, well it's set in the 70s I believe so it's not really the mo- it's still kind of a period piece but he's moving closer to modern day um, and uh, and it's 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 a wonderful film about a, a couple that's in kind of a time of crisis in the, the they don't know what's happening with their kids and uh, in the, in the middle of the swinging 70s of course it was famous for bringing concept of key parties back into the lexicon. I don't know how many people had them as a result of seeing this film. Not many, I hope. But uh, but it, it was very evocative of, of its place and time and a very serious, you know, it was, didn't really have the light touch of, of the previous films, a very serious and very potent drama. Yeah, and it's about two generations, again, uh, the teenagers trying to come to terms with life and and looking to the adults a little bit for some sort of example of what uh you know what to do and not getting much uh, guidance because the parents they are completely unhappy and i think that's what's the issue here it's like they may be sort of right in the crux in the middle of the sort of sexual revolution but it's not helping these wealthy people in the suburbs they're they're still having trouble with their marriages and infidelity um but it allows for a, a sort of suite of great performances from both the young and the old, uh, older, I should say, Uh, you know, in in, amongst the kids, you have Christina Ricci, you've got Elijah Wood, and, uh, and you've got uh, Tobey Maguire. Um, And it's, uh, he's, he's, Tobey Maguire is crushing on this, this girl in his, in his New York uh, private school named Libets, played by a very young Katie Holmes. It's actually quite a lovely sort of subplot there. You sort of feel like it could be a teen movie right there, but they're spending a lot of time with the adults as well. And as you said, the key parties, these, uh, you get Allison Janney in pre-West Wing in a small but solid role. And Henry Cherney and David David Krumholtz are also in this. This is a a very well shot and well made sort of little snapshot of what life might have been like in 1973, thanks to the Rick Moody novel, but apparently quite changed from the original novel. And uh, yeah, it's um, it's something. There's something universal about it that even though Ang Lee again um, he is coming from this other culture, really was able to 
to get to come to grips with with the uh, you know the, the discomfort and the repression that was going on at this time. Now he made he made the ice storm. He also made at this time followed that up with Ride with the Devil, which we talked about in our 1999 movies yes. podcast. So, um, so you know, I don't think we need to go in too much into that, but it's also a great film, another period drama, a western, and uh, it's a it's a slow moving but very affecting look at a at a slice of American history. Um, and then he made Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which was this huge hit, which married like uh, a genuine drama with all the elements of, of the uh, the sort of kung fu wuju uh, genre, which, uh, you know, I gathered Ang Lee loved since he was a kid and all, was always determined to make. Like, that was his dream, to make an action movie, which is so interesting to think about given his, his, cinema, uh, his cinematography, or I should say his filmography, up to that point had no sign of that. Yeah, well, it, aside from uh, the references to to old kung fu movies in Pushing Hands, uh, you know, which of course I now I just watched Pushing Hands for the first time uh, as a result of getting ready for this recording session. So it was kind of cool to see uh, that a that that uh, Si Fung Lung's character is a you know he was a a kung fu master who had to switch to tai chi because it was the the, the more severe martial arts were were kind of hard on his aging body and and yet he he sits at home on the couch uh watching videotapes of old uh old wushu films from it looks like from the 60s or early 70s and and um and so so you know that's sort of the the only other hint really that this that that uh, ang lee would want to move in this direction and i know that people who are diehard uh, fans of those wushu fan films uh have some issues with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon that it's not, you know, that doesn't follow the tradition of some of these films. And, and But I think that's obviously a good thing because some of those films get pretty formulaic if you watch a bunch of them in a row. You know, like uh, there's the master of a school and then they get insulted or uh, attacked by another school and they have to defend the... I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of these films and after a while you kind of lose track of which one's which and each one has its own merits, of course. But uh, but here he, he went for kind of an epic folktale um, you know about a sword and 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 the sort of the sides that want to control this uh, special special sword and of course we have wonderful performances from from Chow Yun Fat and uh, and Michelle Yeoh um, and Zhang Ji yes Zhang Ji uh, as as the kind of the disciple who goes goes wrong and uh, yeah I'd, I haven't revisited it in in a long time but I have really fond memories of the film and there was a sequel that was done I think done for Net- Netflix I don't I think Ang Lee was like a producer on it I don't think he directed it. And it, it brought back some of the characters in, with varying degrees of, I remember not being as uh, impressive, but how could it be, you know, considering that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was doing a lot of this stuff, at least for, for Western audiences, for the very first time. And mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, you know, when it, when it goes to those final sword battles in the bamboo and, and so on, it's just, it's really thrilling filmmaking and, and obviously a sign that, that he wanted to do stuff on a bigger scale, which he would go on to do. Um, but, uh, in, in Hulk was well, the next one. Hulk would be the next feature. And, uh, and that was an interesting one to revisit because, you know, it wasn't terribly well received at the time. It's not well looked on as part of the Marvel universe, but it is interesting to watch just because of it. It is the most comic booky of, of some of the Marvel films that, that Ang Lee goes for, you know, for setups and cuts and framings that are very much straight out of the comic books. Um, in a way that a lot of, uh, I find that a lot of the 
other later films are done in kind of a Marvel house style, which is fine, but uh, for for what they're doing, but uh, they get a little generic after a while, and uh, I find that his Hulk, at least visually, um, kind of does its own thing, and uh, takes some interesting liberties with the Hulk character and his origin and so on that you know makes sense you know, from from a certain. Um, standpoint like the whole thing that it's more about genetics than radiation um i guess has something to do with the fact that ang lee's wife is involved in in genetic research of some sort and so he had some sort of background uh from her work on it and um and, you know and then the action scenes are great the 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 cgi hulk is a lot better than you expect at this stage mm-hmm. of, of the game um, I, I like that jennifer connelly's eyes are the same color as the hulk skin yes <laughs> that was a nice touch yeah. i think that was probably a cgi and, and, alteration and, and she's fine in this film uh eric bana uh, an australian actor who i'm normally pretty fond of is a fairly bland bruce banner mm-hmm. uh, and i don't know what you can actually do with bruce banner um i think mark ruffalo does a good job in uh in the character in the in later Avengers films, I guess there's never going to be a for whatever for rights issues or whatever. There's never going to be a a, a standalone Hulk movie with uh, Mark Ruffalo. At yeah, that's any too point, bad. Which is too bad, but uh, but I, I I like this one more than I did the Ed Norton uh, film that followed. So yeah, I did too. And I think I think actually um, on the Criterion edition of the Ice Storm, there's a separate disc that has an interview with Lee and Seamus talking about their work right up to Lust Caution in 2007. And one of the things that Seamus said about Hulk was that they made the film hoping to try to make it like a real horror, like something that would evoke Frankenstein movies and King Kong, um, something dark and like universal horror movie. Yeah. And what happened is before it came out, the Spider-Man was a huge hit. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, we want to make this movie more like Spider-Man to <laughs> capitalize on that audience, which it wasn't ever intended to do. So that made the marketing of the film and the final release somewhat different than the original plan was, unfortunately. So anyway, all I wish to say is the Hulk was, I think, a troubled project, but uh, it's worth going back to see. Uh, he followed that up, leaded, with uh, Brokeback Mountain in 2005, which was, again, another triumph, another film that was very, I mean, it was every, during the awards sort of period of uh, early 2006, everyone was like, all right, Brokeback Mountain's got to be the favorite for the Oscar for Best Picture. And it wound up losing it to Crash, which I think in retrospect, uh, next is one of the the most egregious, uh, you know, Retrospect, I think the next day. (laughs) But, 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 but anyway, you know, we all know that Brokeback Mountain was the better movie at this point, but it did win three, three Academy Awards. It did. Um, And it was wonderful. And it's still wonderful. I watched this last night and, uh, I, you know, I enjoyed it and, and felt moved by it just as much. Uh, you know, I, I feel like, uh, I mean, some people I think were kind of shocked by this movie at the time in a way that I don't think you would be now. Um, just by the fact that it was, oh, it's Heath Ledger, Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, making out or whatever. But like, I think we've come a long way in just the, in what is really a kind of a very short time, but at the same time feels like uh, another lifetime ago since this film came out. And, uh, you know, they're wonderful in their performances. You know, it, it's hard it's hard to watch it and not think of all the Heath Ledger performances we've been robbed of because he's so great here. And it was such a breakthrough for him at this point. And then, you know, he just completely turned his career up on end with the with, with his portrayal of the Joker, which was also pretty fantastic. And then, you know, that's kind of it. Uh, Dr. Parnass's Imaginarium or whatever, notwithstanding um, his, his Gilliam project that he died during the making of. But, uh, but this, this film is, is so compassionate and, and so 
deeply felt and, and covers of, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how it covers a, a large stretch of time from the early 60s up into, I don't know what, the early 80s. I think it covers like 20 years. And the, maybe the characters, aside from their sideburns and mustaches, don't seem to age that much. They didn't overdo it with the old age makeup, which I think in, is probably a good thing in the long run. Um, because that, that can be kind of distracting. But I, I, I think it's a very affecting tale. I think it's got great parts for Anne Hathaway and um, Michelle Williams as well. Um, uh, I forgot that Linda Cardellini was in it. Right, yeah. You know, as she only has a few scenes as, as a waitress who kind of has a thing for Heath later in the film. But she's wonderful in her moments. And uh, a young Kate Mara as, as the daughter, Junior, um, who is also wonderful in her stuff. Like it, it's, I feel like it's gotten better over time. Some movies don't age very well. Uh, but I feel like this one has actually improved with time. Yeah, and I still I think it 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 marked a high watermark for Lee in some ways. I think his films since I have liked a lot of them, but I don't feel like they have achieved. And again, I think his fascination with technology might be getting in the way of some of his more humanist instincts as a storyteller. Though Lust Caution from 2007 was was quite an ambitious two-hour, 45-minute espionage story set in the late 30s and early 40s in Hong Kong and Shanghai. And it has a little bit of that sort of Casablanca kind of uh, feel to it. Uh, uh, and it's about uh, spies and the occupation, the Japanese occupation of, of China. And um, yeah, it's definitely worth seeing. It's very erotic. There's a there's quite a strong sexual contest, co- content, which some people find shocking. I didn't myself. It's also a little bit violent in some places. But um, I think there's a lot to like about the film. I feel I felt like it was a bit long, but for the hardcore Ang Lee fan, it's definitely worth seeking out. Uh, now, he went on after Lust Caution to make Taking Woodstock in 2009, which marked his final collaboration with James James Seamus uh, up to, I guess, this point, though I gather they're getting together to make another film soon, um, The Thrilla in Manila, about the famous boxing match uh, with um, uh, Muhammad Ali. But, uh, but yeah, this was their last uh, collaboration uh, before taking a break for a few films. And uh, Taking Woodstock... It's it's like it's a little dull to be honest. I, I found it it's it's about a sort of side event that happened, um, I guess, based on some truth uh, outside of Woodstock. Um, and the central character I didn't find very engaging. So I don't know that I would point people to this film. I mean, there's there's some good performances, and I guess if you're interested in the whole culture of what happened at Woodstock, this kind of helps fill in a gap that may be there about how some people helped organize it. Um, but uh, but yeah, again. You know, I have a little bit of a problem with the boomers wanting to mythologize every aspect of their yes. youth, and this film definitely is trying to do that. Yeah, I mean, we and we've just been deluged with 50th anniversary of Woodstock stuff, so uh, maybe this film's had a bit of resurgence just in its sort of connection to the event, but it it did feel fairly lackluster at the time. I remember just coming out of this film going, well, that was kind of a bunt, you know, more than <laughs> a big swing for the fences. It, it uh you know, and it, I think part of the problem is that, you know, the Woodstock in and of itself was a fairly exciting, you know, powerful event. And the film doesn't really encapsulate much of that. I mean, obviously, they're not going to recreate Woodstock for what is essentially kind of a low budget character drama. But uh, but that's the problem with the, making a film sort of tied to such an exciting event. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, uh, uh you know the Pearl Harbor rock concerts or whatever you yeah. want to call it. The uh, it's 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 just uh, yeah. It, 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 I didn't really care much about the characters or you know they weren't really going through any major 
struggle, really. Um, yeah, the stakes were low. And uh, yeah, and so it was just kind of a minor, kind of likable, but then maybe kind of not, uh, mm-hmm. kind of kind of character drama. So, uh, so yeah, so then he uh, does the swing for the fences on his next film, Life of Pi, um, based on the Jan Martel novel. Um, about a young man from India whose uh, his family decides to, uh, I, I think they're heading to America on a trans-Pacific uh, voyage after running a, uh, after running a zoo. Mm, actually, that, Canada. They're coming oh, here. Oh, they're coming to Canada. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. How could I forget? <laughs> uh, and uh, the, the, the both are on sinks, and uh, the, our, our young man, our main protagonist, uh, winds up stuck on a lifeboat with a tiger who yeah. he's... Attempted to befriend as a young younger boy uh, in the zoo, and now is faced with having to actually figure out a way to make peace with this, uh, you know, th- this uh, this ravenous animal. Yeah, <laughs> and, and in full, the of the ocean. Full credit. The CGI in this case is spectacular. The tiger is very convincing, terrifying. I actually saw this in 3D, and it was one of the first times once the 3D thing became popular in cinemas here that I actually thought the 3D was was valid. Like I thought it was was actually worked to help flesh out the film in a way that I might not have otherwise. It's been very few and far between that I have been a fan of 3D, and in this film, I was. Um, now, I know that we're running short of time here on Lens Mirror Ears and our look back at uh, the work of Ang Lee, and uh, but I want to make sure that we have, have a couple of minutes to talk about the film he made before yes. uh, Gemini Man, and that's Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, a film that I, from 2016, a film I had seen for the first time this week, and I know, I think you had as well. Yeah, I, I missed it in theaters. I I think it came here. Like, <laughs> I feel like it was one of those blink and you'll miss it kind of titles. It was not terribly well-reviewed. Um, it was his first uh, time, I think, experimenting with a high frame rate. It's, mm-hmm. it's, he shot it in a super fast uh digital format which uh, doesn't come across at all if you watch it on Netflix as I did but um but it's a, it's an it's an interesting film it's it's not a it's it's a bit of an experiment not a complete failure uh <laughs> and I'm going to damn it with faint praise because there are certain parts of it that don't work um there are some story issues with the film but I found over overall I I found a, a lot of the the stuff about the 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 young man uh, Billy Lynn coming home to um to uh, Texas after uh, being in Iraq in the, in the Gulf War and and everything that he has to go through and trying to sort of normalize when when he's no longer normal and especially with the, with his uh, fellow troop members to be back in in America I, th- I found a lot of that fairly affecting and there's some great performances throughout the film and then there's just some weird story moments that uh, kind of take you out of the film so and it, you know it's kind of shot in real time in a way almost especially when you get to this football game where basically um, this uh, this squad that uh, became viral when the scene of Billy Lynn trying to save his sergeant uh, played by uh, Vin Diesel, uh, who's actually pretty good in, in his uh, handful of scenes, um, you know, they become sort of a, a bit of an international sensation based on this footage from a captured cell phone of him trying to save his uh, save a sergeant and fight off his attackers. And then you find it, you know, you get you get inside that incident and what really happened and the effect that it had on his psyche. And um, 
it's uh, it's it's interesting. It's a it's a I think a first time performance for a British actor, Joe Alwyn, who plays Billy, you know, Texas uh, soldier Billy Lynn, and he's very, yeah, he's been in a couple of, a couple of things since. He was in oh, yeah. favorite, and uh, and yeah, he's he's he's. I, th- I thought he was fine. Um, I don't think I loved him. I felt like he some of his inexperience was showing off. But he is surrounded by some really solid support. Mm. Uh, Tim Blake Nelson has a great scene. Uh, Steve Martin as a team owner is a little bit of an odd choice, but I think he works here. Yeah. Uh, Chris Tucker, in the, one of the few times I've not been irritated by Chris <laughs> Tucker, is in this. Uh, Kristen Stewart as his sister. She's great in the handful of scenes. But we've learned since Twilight is that she has a lot of talent and uh, – She's now showing it, but I think Garrett Headland is the standout as the bra, the surgeon, the sergeant from uh, the Bravo company. He is really good, and uh, and he carries a lot of the scenes that he's in. Yeah, he's he's the strongest thing in the film for sure, and uh, thankfully we get a lot of time with him over the course of the film as he's trying to keep this band of yahoos together. He's not the stereotypical hard ass sergeant, you know. He has a lot of affection for these uh, for these troops, and uh, you know, which he tries to kind of hide because he's got to be the authority figure but you know eventually it, it kind of all comes out and and uh like i say it's it's the whole maybe less than the sum of its parts but some of the parts of this film are, are really great there's 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 a weird thing where he where billy lynn has this kind of sudden uh relationship with a cheerleader that may or may not be hard to buy depending on how you feel about i felt it. like some of the dialogue in their scenes where it was out yeah. of like a movie from the 50s um, she's very pretty, she's very charming bad. but then at that point yeah you're right it, it does kind of it doesn't feel very realistic and there's a scene where they keep getting attacked by this the, these crew members which just i don't know why that happens it's it felt very forced and fake to me and, and oh this yeah right the security guys in the in the stadium well they're they're not security they're production crew members okay and then because the, the security right. guys then they come in and break it up and then right. they jump them you know in the loading dock and I was like, they've got this show to run why would they bother with these anyway the, the, so it's 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 not a not a perfect mix but it is on netflix and 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 worth seeing for uh, for the moments that do work uh, if, you, if you feel like checking it out Well, thank you so much for listening to us uh, ramble on about uh, the work of Ang Lee, the great uh, Taiwanese-American filmmaker here on Lens Me Your Ears. Uh, My name is Karsten Ox. I'm a film writer, and uh, I'm here opposite uh, Stephen Cook. And if you would like to reach out to us and talk to us about the work we're doing here or even suggest you know, uh, other subjects that we could be talking about. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears. I have a Twitter account. It's called Flaw on the Iris, named after my blog. And Stephen, you've got one too. Yes, I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And there is an email address, lensmeyourears at gmail.com, but that's probably not the best way to get hold of us. I can't remember the last time I checked that. So, no, me neither. So best not. Uh, try social media instead. We also have a Patreon account. If you'd like to support what we do here, we would very much appreciate that. Many, many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30. And also thanks to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be talking about movies again very soon. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.